Welcome to another distinct nostalgia by MIM. Brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. Staying well, staying home. We continue our celebration of classic British film now as we focus on a Merchant Ivory adaptation of an E.M. Forster novel which first brought none other than Hugh Grant and Rupert Graves to mainstream attention. They were two of the three main stars of Morris, a story of forbidden gay love in Edwardian England. The exquisitely shot film had an all-star supporting cast too, including Denham Elliott, Simon Callow, Billy Whitelaw and Ben Kingsley. But the main star taking the lead in his first big role was James Wilby, who played the rather dashing Morris Hall. Ashley Byrne has been taking James back nearly 35 years to when he first got wind of Morris. Am I right in saying that was the sort of the the film that sort of catapulted you in a way to sort of being more known, as it were? You've been in other things, but was Morris the first film that sort of people began to know you from? Completely, yeah. Yes, I'd just done a bits and bobs of TV, you know, and quite a lot of theatre, and out of nowhere, Morris. Yeah, yeah. Um, you have done another Merchant Ivory film before that, haven't you? Is that no, right? No, no. I on Rubber the View. I was at RADA then training, and I uh, and we got a, a notice put on the notice board saying they were looking for some young men, particularly uh, to to be part of a soirée evening, and it's a scene where Helen Bottom's Carter character plays a piano and. Daniel Day-Lewis's character, who's been teaching the piano, I think, is listening. I can't quite remember the, the actual... And I, I think my shoulder appears at one point. <laughs> and that's it. It's my uh, brief moment in Room with a View. But James Ivory always laughingly says I've been in more Merchant Ivory films than anyone else. Fabulous, fabulous. So tell us then, what had you, what had you been doing before Morris then? What you well, mainly the, you know, mainly the theatre. I, I did a couple of jobs with Nick Heitner before he was Nick Heitner. Um, up in one in Leeds, Leeds Playhouse, uh, Manchester Royal Exchange. I'd done an episode of The Bill. I did a, a TV film based on, called Dutch Girls, um, which was written by William Boyd, starring Colin Firth. And at the time of Morris... I was working at Chichester Festival Theatre doing three roles there. Um, they all came down to see me to check if I could actually act. I don't know. Um, yeah, I was a, I was starting out. So when did you first get notice of of the the film Morris? Then the first job I did after leaving Rada was there was a stage stage play called Another Country, which launched a lot of careers. It launched Ken Branagh, it launched Daniel Day Lewis, and I was in the third cast of that. And the casting director, Celestia Fox, had me up for a part in Morris. And, and Jim Ivory said, we can't have him in the film because he looks too much like Julian Sands, who was, gonna, who was down to play Morris. So I was not going to be in the film. And then Julian Sands pulled out about three weeks before the start of filming. And they were suddenly out of nowhere without their leading actor um, in three weeks before principal photography. And that's when... He said to Celestia, who was that guy with that blonde guy who said couldn't be in the film because he looked too much like Julian, let's get him in. And they started to re-audition. So I was now brought back to, to be seen for the leading role. And I had a lot of wonderful coincidences. I knew Hugh Grant from 
a couple, for a couple of reasons, but I knew him and he was already cast to play Clive in the film. So I immediately called him up and we got together the night before my audition and because I was going I knew I'd be reading with uh, Hugh and we went through all the scenes together. Now that's a huge advantage for an actor because otherwise you, you're meeting someone you don't know, you're, you're nervous anyway and suddenly to be able to, to, to go through and discuss the scenes and, and have some kind of uh, starting so I felt a, I felt a little bit sorry for the other actors. Uh, in, in, I don't really feel sorry for them at all, but um, <laughs> but uh, you know I did have an advantage. There's no doubt about that. So what do you know about Morris? Because obviously it's an Ian Forster novel. Did you know much about it beforehand? Not absolutely nothing. And, and and to my shame, I hadn't even read a single Forster. But you know, somebody a very good friend of mine, who I was working at Chichester, knew I was going to meet for the audition, and we were very busy at the time. And, she just sort of came round one evening with a. She'd found a copy in the local bookstore, so I then read the book as fast as I could, as well as the script that I was sent. In those days, you'd get sent a script, and the through the post, it was going to be three days before you got it, or two days before you got it, or they might bike it. <laughs> but nowadays, everything gets sent on email, and you're supposed to learn it in two seconds flat. Anyway, I had time to read the book. I had about a week to look at the look at the script and read the book, and. You know, that was a that was a wonderful thing too, because everything's like, well, if you read the book, Forrest Forrest was one of those writers that really gets inside the mind of his of his protagonists, and so you're living his thoughts, which is a fantastic thing for an actor because otherwise you've got to invent the thoughts. So I understood it very well by the time I went into the meeting. And did you find when you first did that read through with with Hugh the night you know the night before your audition, did you feel? Uh, an instant affinity with the with the part. Did you feel as though there was going to be some chemistry there? You could do this. It was something you felt confident about. Instantly, yeah. When I, as soon as I read it, I went, I can do this. You know, and as an actor, you often you think, mm, that's 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 going to push me, or you go, oh, I can do that. I don't mean standing in my head. I didn't mean that. I don't mean that. I mean I know I've got it in me to do that. What's required, I can do it, and that's a good feeling. Sometimes it's really good to have to, to really fight to get somewhere with a part, I and mean, it's, it's very rewarding. But with this one, I knew I could do it. And Hugh Grant was unknown at this point as well, wasn't he? He wasn't really well known, particularly. Not at all. Not at all. No. I think, again, I think probably this was the first big film that he was in, wasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, and telly. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, yeah. He'd come out, he came out of nowhere to do that. He, I wasn't at Oxford. He was at Oxford, and, and in his last year, there was a guy... Who Called Michael Hoffman, who's now become since become a very, very well respected uh, U.S. director, film director, and he he got together and made a film called Privileged, which had Hugh in it, and I had a smallish part in it because I happened to know him uh, through a mutual friend. Uh, Imogen Stubbs was in it, and it kind of put all the, the, the three of us on a because we were the ones that wanted to carry on being actors. Everyone else in the film was just doing it because they were in Oxford and liked acting. And it gave us all a start because the casting directors all came to watch it. And um, I think Hugh particularly got a lot of attention. It didn't go anywhere. And it, it, you know, it's very hard to break into this profession. And once you've broken in, it, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's much, much easier. But it's very hard to make that first, first move. No, I, I can understand that. Many people, many, many people say that. And of course, 
<laughs> going further on, which we're not, we will talk about this later, but obviously you can end up, also end up being typecast no. once you've once you've made that move and all the rest of it. But going back to the, going back to Morris, so so you, you did the read through. You how did you so you, you did the audition? How did you? How were you told about that you got the part? Oh, uh, that was a rather beautiful story. My mum came to stay, but she was coming to see the play that I was doing at Chichester. And I had a uh, I had a spare room in the in the place I was renting, so we were in the kitchen of this of this rented accommodation in Chichester, and the phone went, and which was rare because no one really knew I was there. But it was in the days before mobile phones, so I probably hadn't given it out to a number of people, and. Um, it was James Ivory on the phone. He went. He went. Well, it's it's Jim, it's Jim here, and I just wanted to tell you uh, in person that you're it. You're Mars. That's exactly what he said. You're it. You're Mars. And I went, bless you. <laughs> and then we chatted for a few minutes, and and then we, my mother and I did a little jig around the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> this is what thirty three years ago, is it, or thirty four oh, years don't. ago? We're talking about <laughs> mid eighties, is it? Something mid-80s. like that. <laughs> so you, you'd be in your 20s, were you in your 20s at the time? I was 29, 20s? I think. So you were a young man embarking on what in effect was a you know, huge movie, but how was it approached? How were Merchant Ivory films approached in those days? Because of course this, this, if I remember rightly, got funding, didn't it, from Channel 4, and that, it, was that, it was that extra bit of funding that made this happen, because this was a new era, wasn't it, of... British filmmaking, which had been given a bit of a kickstart, hadn't it, from yeah, well, Channel you, 4 and whatever? You, you know, God only knows how Merchant Ivory financed his films. You know, he somehow got himself into a position where you know, there was, it was a kind of kudos to be involved in one of these films, one of the Merchant Ivory films. And if you think about it, there were very few other British films being made. I mean, there were some, obviously there were some, but they, you know, they kept it going for that 10-year period when they were, you know, they had a period of making films in India, a period of making films in America, a period of making films here. And then they went on to make a, a period of films in France. I think they got fed up with having to deal with certain aspects of the film industry in Britain. So they went off to France to make films, much to our, you know, we, we were the losers. Thinking about those very early days, you got the yeah. part, you're making a big film. How did, you know, how did it all start? What, what can you remember? Can you remember your first day? I can. I, I mean, in a way, curious way, I was quite, I was, did the, I was saying I was doing a season of film, a season of plays rather at Chichester. And it finished on the Saturday night. I had a performance on Saturday night and then the whole, the whole summer festival stopped. I drove to London. We had a read through on, on the afternoon of Sunday. He asked uh, Rupert Graves and Hugh and myself, the three sort of main protagonists, to stay behind. And we sort of reread our scenes. That didn't finish till about seven in the evening. I then went back to my flat and packed and drove to. Now I can't quite remember where it was. It was somewhere, somewhere near Guildford. It wasn't Guildford. It was somewhere near Guildford or Andover, somewhere like that, where we were staying in a hotel because we, we were going to be staying in a hotel because we were filming on location at. Uh, at Clive's house, Pemberley, I think they called it. In the book, it's called Penge, and they changed that for obvious reasons. Anyway, uh, and we started shooting on, on the Monday afternoon with no real rehearsal at all. But that's the way that most films are done, and you don't have to be honest. you know, we just, If you work for the BBC, they'll have a week where, they, where you can rehearse. And it, I mean, when you say rehearse, you probably it's more discussion than rehearsal. But at least it gives the director a chance to put across his ideas, whereas in movies, generally, they Everyone congregates and you start. Extraordinary, really. 
especially for somebody like me who's been working, you know, used to working in a theatre where you have four weeks or five weeks of rehearsal. And I just, I just took to it. And then, you know, the great thing about movies is that you're doing a bit a day. So you take it bit by bit. This part that you were playing, and in fact, all three of you were playing, and you, Rupert and Hugh, were playing, you know, very intimate roles. It's a very intimate, affectionate movie. I'm from an LGBT background. It's one of those films that is up there in terms of the films that, you know, is sort of a rite of passage, as it were, in terms of understanding your sexuality and all the rest of it. How did you approach that and how did you get into that? Because you, you all three of you do it so well. I mean, it's so authentic. It's really, really well done. Well, I, I actually am not gay, but then it seems to me that if you fall in love with somebody, that's out of your control, really, in, in the main. And if they, if they show some affection back, you, you go into some weird, gorgeous moments when your love is returned by, some, by a, a, another person. I would imagine, I assume, that it's universal. And so it doesn't seem to make any difference whether it's a, a man you've fallen in love with or, or a woman you've fallen in love with, or indeed anybody you've fallen in love with. There are weird rules, aren't you? If, a young, if an old man falls in love with a, a young man or woman, um, that's not sort of allowed. It's kind of a weird thing that we, we do as human beings. But it's, anyway, it seemed to me that, the, that then the dilemma is not that you've fallen in love, is that it's not allowed in this particular time for whatever reason. And I, I love in Forces Forward, he says, I chose someone as Morris, someone very unlike myself, someone who was physically good-looking, athletic, but mentally torpid, he says, and into which I, I dropped this ingredient of being gay, and that makes him wake up. And so it's it's also a story of a, of a man not only coming to terms with his sexuality, it seems to me, but also coming to terms with the world, who he is, his identity, what's it all about. I think everything suddenly from a, from a, 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 a boy into a young man who's really not thought much, just accepted everything that's been spoon-fed to him by his schools, his university, his parents, whatever. He's accepted everything without even questioning it. Suddenly, out of no, I think he now has to question his entire existence. Yeah, I mean, he comes over at the end of it, once you get to the, the end point, you know, he's, he's, he's rebelling, isn't he, against the, the world of that, of that time, really, and saying, right, actually, no, I want to go away, I want to be happy, I, wanna, I don't want any of this, I want to be, you know, and there was Clive, you know, becoming an MP and all the rest of it, and accepting the norms as they were at the time, you know, and, and your character went off and, you know, that a great thing about, a great thing about it actually for a, for a gay film or LGBT film is it actually has a happy ending, which there aren't many films like that that have a happy ending. Well, he was forced to want that. He wanted to, you know, have a happy ending. Why the hell not? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Obviously, you know, you know, you didn't know Hugh particularly well. You'd, you'd met him before. You didn't know him massively well, and presumably, you'd not known, you didn't know um, Rupert Graves particularly well either. Or did you, did you know? Did and, you know Rupert? First time I met Rupert was at the read through. And you're having you're thrown at the deep end. I know you say you do one thing at a time in a film kind of thing, but how easy is it to 
I mean, you say that it's, yes, it's about falling in love and you're replicating that as opposed to it being gay, straight, bi or whatever. I understand that. But how easy is it to do what were, you know, pretty, very intimate scenes, really? I mean, they were very, very loving, very affectionate scenes, very intimate scenes. Um, I, 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 they're always difficult. You can't deny it because, you know, none of us really want to be semi-naked kissing or stroking or whatever in front of, in front of, <laughs> You know, ten or twelve or fifteen members of the crew of both sexes. Uh, you know, it's just just not that easy. But you know, I mean, Ivory's got tremendous sensitivity and sensibility. So that that was we had a French cameraman who it was like water for ducks back. You know, the French just accept everything sexually. It seems to me quite happily. They don't have any of our hangups. So that helped. Rupert, who's actually, if you think about it, in the film, there's a moment where where Morris and Clive, played by Hugh, they hold each other. There's a clumsy, not even a kiss, isn't? I don't think the mouths even meet. The real person, the sort of proper sex scenes, as it were, between between Morris and Scudder, played by Rupert. So, and, and Rupert's one of those very easy actors and very uh, Pliable, if I may say, the, use that word. He's, you know, if, if I hold, if I held Rupert, he, he would be holding me back. It was very, he was very physically easy to be with. I found it very easy to do those scenes. It's extraordinarily easy. We, we, have, we, we built up a rapport. He makes me laugh, Rupert. He always has done, and he makes me laugh more and more. Very witty man, and uh, and we used to discuss the scenes and and laugh and and uh, and work out how to do them happily. And we did the, the the big kiss at the end, and that's a you know it's a huge sort of romantic moment of the film with the full orchestra blaring away. We did that on day four. Really? Yeah, it was our first big scene together. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes I've noticed that this has happened since as, as, as an actor. So I wonder if sometimes the director, who's still, you know, the actors are still finding their feet. No one's complacent. I wonder if they, sometimes they shove a scene like that in early on to kick everyone into gear and it certainly kicked us all into gear because I've never done a film in chronological order I, I have met a couple of actors who have you know a particular director likes to do that but and you think and a lot of our people who aren't actors are, say to you well how do you do when, you, when you're going to the end and then you're going to the middle and you're going to the beginning and you're going to the end again and you're darting around but in a curious way if you've done a big scene towards the end and you felt it's gone all right. It's when you screw them up, that's a real pain. But if you think it's gone all right, it's a great marker. You put a marker down. It's like a corner of a, of a jigsaw puzzle. You've got the corner fixed. And it's sort of a marker that you can, always, you can relate to. You can, you can aim towards it. And so, you know, it, it, does have, it does work. How much, we'll talk a bit more about some of the memorable scenes in a moment, but how much of that kind of world that they were inhabiting, you know, the... The, the sort of the, 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 that upper class world, uh, you know, the university, the the politics, all that kind of thing. How much did any of you know about that? I mean, was it easy to slip into that kind of? Because I remember one of the first one of the first scenes is is everybody sat round one of the tutors' houses or, or rooms or whatever, having, a, having a, a a chat about different issues and politics and various things. It sort of, it just seems to come very natural. I mean, I know there's a script. Did any of you know about that? You know, was that a world you were you were inhabiting at all? Not to that extent. I, I do think that, I do think that um, 
universities in those days were, you know, the, the character that you're referring to is called Risley. I mean, it's about talk. Everybody likes to talk. Talking was much more an art form then than it, it probably is now. We talk more to communicate now, I think. And and, and, and we don't want and, and people who would talk uh, sound pompous weirdly now. But I think in those days, it was, it was, I don't know. I didn't know much about it. But then, of course, we've all read loads and loads of books, you know, especially if you read English at, at A-level, which I did. I, and I want actually to carry on doing it at university. But, but um, you know, if you've read Austin and you've read, I mean, even Dickens, to some extent, anything, you get so much of, of the kind of the manners that are required of you at, at that time. I sort of almost create the drama of the piece. And the curious way as an actor, it, it, you always notice it when you've moved, when you've, when you've spent, say, three months doing a period piece and then you move back to doing a modern piece, is that, that, that you haven't got that framework of, of class and manners to hang anything onto. It becomes more about, it becomes about something much subtler, much more, actually much more interesting, I think, but um, harder because you haven't got that. It's dramatically, you just let, that's why there's so many, we do so many period pieces because it lends itself to drama. There's always somebody doing something wrong. It's not acceptable or not accepted. And so there immediately there's a drama created. And, and Risley, of course, you mentioned Risley. Risley was the catalyst, wasn't he, to your character meeting uh, Clive and, and the, the affair emerging kind of thing. It was, yeah. he was the sort of this, this, this person that brought you together. But he, he strikes me as, in reality, we didn't get to know much about Risley. It sounds as though he probably wasn't a particularly nice character, actually, in a way. I don't know whether he's nice or not nice. Um, th- I think he was intellectually way ahead of... I mean, very interested to have a scene between him and Morris, you know, later, right at the end of the film, because then Morris will be able to stand up for himself. But I've always... There's always been people in my life, when I was young, who I just felt intellectually inferior to, or that they had somehow always got the bloody answer to everything and you were always way behind and he was one of those drama fresh and original we're not here to cause damage we just want a hearing to be heard like any citizen of this country distinct drama presents sylvia men working in the same factory have time for lunch simply because they are men written by leslie strachan and directed by colin guthrie you have no voice here only the father has the right to ask distinct drama presents a powerful exploration of the relationship between the pankhurst sisters we will not bargain for the vote burn maybe not bargain a leslie strachan production your hunger strikes are not for nothing We will not be eclipsed by who my sister is sleeping with. Available to listen now. Search for Distinct Drama wherever you get your podcasts or go to distinctnostalgia.com. Christabel is losing the membership. Militancy surrounds us. The government is running scared. That is the opportunity. How can you be so blind? How much of the film... Does it replicate the book? I've never read the book, I have to say. But does it replicate the book very well? Or, Absolutely or not? brilliantly. And you must read the book. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a masterpiece, I think. And it's um, and what you don't get from the film is Forster's um, brilliant prose. I mean, he, he talks about the sort of um, fear and phobia that Morris is going through. Um, his excitement on, on meeting Clive and he can't quite work out what that is. I mean, it, it, it's brilliantly written. You just, you're sort of, you're just, you're in awe of a man that can be so in command of 
of the English language to just take you on this this ride. So you don't get any of that, but you get the you do get the plot, and the plot's rather brilliant. There's, I think there's only one scene, and that's again involves Risley when Risley goes off to a sort of London pub to to pick up a guardsman, and then gets caught. And there's a scene in court where he, he's where he's going to be, you know, done for soliciting a man. And they, they put that in because I don't think it's that clear why Clive Durham, Hugh Grant's character, suddenly stops loving Morris. It's not that clear why. And it's fear, really. So they decided to make it more explicit. And I think they were right to do that. It's fear. He's frightened of, you know, he wants to become a politician. He wants to have children. He doesn't see an affair with Morris particularly useful to his future career. And it's particularly if he got, if he got found out. But anyway, they put that scene in to, to make that clearer. Otherwise, it's unbelievably... I love that about Merchant Ivy. They don't use the book as a kind of um, springboard to have their own ideas. They actually feel the book is worthy enough in its own merit, which is why they picked it, to, to make a film of it and try and find the essence of the book in film. And remember, the viewers are saying they're, they're amazingly faithful adaptations. You talked about the the angst and the, the pain that your character was going through. And I mean, that's been touched in on in lots of other films, but in this film, it, it's very, it's very well done. The whole thing of, obviously there's the whole issue of, of, of Clive and Clive rebuffing him and all the rest of it. But there's also that undercurrent of him being sort of treated for his homosexuality, as it were. And these, these conversations with the Denham Elliott character about whether or not, you know, he should be cured of what was going on kind of, when you think about it, I know you were just acting, but it must have been absolutely awful to have to go through that kind of thing. I mean, dreadful, wasn't it, really? Yes, absolutely dreadful. I mean, I mean Morris genuinely wonders if it's, he's got a disease, because that's what he's been taught. That's what everyone says, you know, done brilliantly by Delamelli. Rubbish! <laughs> as soon as he took rubbish, <laughs> he won't have it. He just won't have it. Never hear you, never hear you say those things again. Absolute rubbish. Go and find yourself a nice girl. <laughs> Settle down. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's uh, and this is the, and and and, and Forster's clever because you know the, the, he was supposed to be this very worldly wise character, the doctor, yeah. Doctor Barry, played by Dana Mellie. and of course he's as bigoted as the rest of them as it comes to, it. as indeed the, probably the whole of society was. Yeah, no, they used shock, now, shock therapy, didn't they, at some point to try and stop people yeah. being going. It was a whole American thing, wasn't it? Uh, they're fabulous scenes, and obviously, as you say, fabulously played by Denham Elliott. Presumably, that was the first time you'd ever worked yeah. with Denham Elliott. What was what was he like to work oh, with? Just wonderful. Yes, I was sort of in awe of a lot of. I mean, I you know, you suddenly out of nowhere, you're you're up against some of your idols and or people you you think, well, Christ, they're right at the top of their game. You know, same with Ben Kingsley or. Billy Whitecourt or whoever else it was. But Denham, I remember being absolutely sort of amazed by Denham because he just, he's so real when you're acting. You know, you, you, it's always very interesting when you when you work with an actor. There's somebody, you know, it's even quite good ones, you can sense the acting. Whereas there's, every now and then you come up against somebody who, there's no acting appears to be going on. And, you know, and he was one of those. Did you work in that film with... Simon Callow, because he's in at the beginning, isn't he? When your your character is a, small, is a little boy, but did, does he come into it later? Or is yeah, he, he does just, come into the it. beginning he's, bit, right at the beginning when I'm a, when Morris is a little boy. But then then when Morris agrees to meet Scudder 
in the British Museum, um, out of nowhere, this character from his past, the school teacher, pops up and says, oh, hello, I, I know your face, and I don't tell me what's your name, what's your name, don't tell me, don't tell me. And Morris has to lie, doesn't have to lie, he chooses to lie, because he gets it right. And, you know, it was it's the beginning of him accepting Scudder. That scene at the beginning, obviously it's not you, it's the little boy playing the part. That's a very touching scene, that Funny beginning scene. part of the, the film. It's lovely, yeah. isn't it? Really nice, really nice. So, yeah, so as you say, so you were thrown at the deep end with some... I mean, some big names, weren't there? I mean, obviously, there's the three of you who were quite new and unknown, but you had some great, real established talent in that film as well. And they were very supportive, really supportive. It, it, it's always interesting, you know, it's, you know, my latter, in the latter, my latter career, you know, I've played quite a few bit parts to young actors and you realise that they are, that they are the leading roles who, you know, fit around them. I mean, Billy White, who plays my mum, was just adorable. Um... Who else? It's just it's really, Barry Foster, very sweet. Barry Foster. Yeah. I keep thinking back to the film. Who did um, who did Ben Kingsley actually play? Who did he play? Well, there's a psychiatrist that he, Morris goes to see to try and cure him of being homosexual. And in the in the book, it's sort That's of, right. I think Foster mentions he's got a kind of curiously mid-Atlantic accent, so you immediately assume he's American. And in, in, anyway, Ben played him American, and so he's in. There's two scenes called Lasker Jones. Is very strange character he produced. Rather wonderful. Yeah, no, I, re I remember who he is now. Yeah, it could be coming back to me. So those locations, I mean, you, play, you, you filmed it at some really lovely locations. Mm. I mean, did you get a chance to experience those lo locations or was it a case of literally in and out doing the filming or whatever? Or, you know, I mean, that, that set, the setting for the film, settings for the film were lovely, weren't they? They were brilliant. But, I mean, you, you experience them by being, by being there. I mean, you know, if you go and see a country house, you, you wander around it for an hour and a half, do that and you experience it. If you're acting in it, you're acting the gardens in every room of what well, two or three rooms, four rooms of the building, out in the fields surrounding. You know, you really do get to know the, the place well. The British Museum. We spent a whole day there in the British Museum. That was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And and Cambridge. Did anything go wrong as you throughout the, the filming? Did anything? Was there any major things that had to be redone again? Yeah, or? they didn't like the Did end you? scene. Um, so he re we reshot that. Was that the one in the um, in the boathouse? No, that went very well. Um, no, there's a scene before that where he confronts. He sort of appears out of the bushes and confronts. Doesn't confront. He he talks to Clive in a very measured way. And basically, says goodbye to Clive, and it's a beautifully written scene in the book. And it's a very difficult scene because basically, he appears out of nowhere in the gloom, and Clive's on his on his sort of uh, veranda or whatever. Um, Terrace, uh, practicing practicing a speech, and he suddenly suddenly Morris is there, and in the same way he sort of disappears out of it. Well, that's easy to do in a book, <laughs> not easy to do on film. Anyway, we reshot that. But the biggest thing that was for, for me, I found uh, terrible, was that we um, we were running out of time, and about two weeks before we finished, Jim Ivory came up to me and said, "Look, we're going to have to." We're never going to finish the film. We're going to have to re remount in, I think it was, it was uh, early December or late November. We're going to have to remount in March to finish the film. And of course, as an actor, you think, oh no, because what if something happens to you, <laughs> you know, especially your first film, you just want to finish it, get it in the can, and start something new rather than having something hanging over you. 
I think they were running out yeah, of money yeah. between, between <laughs> it's, I, you know, I, I've done films and I don't think any film has taken, you know, I'm not talking about big, big um, action movies because they obviously take forever, but, um, you know, a normal drama, seven, possibly eight weeks. And now probably four or five, six weeks. But Morris, we did 10 weeks. And that was also doing 12 hour days. God, what a lot. I was exhausted. Six, seven, six days a week. And then we still had to remount to do an 11th week. So I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It was a very, they, they decided to shoot, because everything was sort of candlelit in those days, they decided to shoot with very little light. So it was a lot of, it was lit a lot by candles and lamps, and, uh, you know, um, which means that the, it's always very dark. And he wanted that look. He wanted a very kind of uh, claustrophobically, dark underbelly of, of England, not the sort of bright uh, Italy of Room with a View, for instance. He wanted this dark feeling. So there's a lot of, all the interiors are lit very dark, but of course it makes, makes it a nightmare for the, the camera operator and then particularly the focus puller who are trying to deal with very low light, low light levels. So that was tricky for the team and it took a long time to light as well because I was, and for me as an actor, I was having to hit tiny marks so that I'd be illuminated there, but maybe not there. So you'd have to pause. If you were walking, for instance, in a, in a scene, you'd have to pause in exactly the right spot so there was a little bit of light there and then move into another pool of light. And that, you know, requires a bit more extra rehearsal than, you know, than normal. But it looks great. It does. It adds to the authenticity, mm. definitely, doesn't it? So the inside scenes, were they done in buildings or were they done in a studio? No, all, on, all on location, not one, not one studio. Actually, hang on, is that a lie? Let me just think. I don't think we went to a single studio. Talking about the lighting side of things then, your naked, your famous naked scene when you're getting up in the morning, you and uh, Scudder, um, <laughs> was that done early in the morning or was it done at another time of the day? What, what was, no, uh, we were in that room. That we were in that room for the day. So we, we started with the, the scene before and then we, once that had been shot, we then did the morning scene. I mean, you know, that's all done with lights. Yeah. And even early morning, it was supposed to be summer. It would be still light by four, wouldn't it? So it would be light. And I presume the curtains would be drawn. Yeah. I don't know. I can't actually remember whether the curtains were drawn. Or I would assume they would be, <laughs> given what we were up to. And did you did you have to do that scene several times to get it right? Or was it quite an easy one to do? I seem to remember it going quite well. And there was also a lot of it was taken in one shot because of I, he gets out of bed and sits there. And then I get out of the bed round the back and come round. And that was all done in one shot. I do remember the bed breaking and uh, Pierre Long, the French cameraman, saying, oh, what a man, which kind of, uh, <laughs> it kind of broke the ice a bit. The bed literally collapsed because I think they put it up on, on fours to make it, they, when they're always messing around with chairs and beds to make, the, to make the frame look better. They want the bed a bit higher, so they'll put it up on, a, on two by fours or whatever, and it had fallen off. <laughs> <laughs> now, the scene that I like most touches me most because I think it's just really well done. I don't know whether whether the way he acted it was literally, he naturally did it or whether it was acting or whatever, but it always feels really authentic to me, is when you go to find him at the boathouse and he and Scudder is led there waiting for you and he, he yawns or something, he, he yawns and he goes, oh, sorry, or something like that, and uh, I'm a bit tired what, with one thing yeah, or another, and he perfect. says in his wonderful, his wonderful West Country yeah. accent. I mean, that's such a lovely yeah. moment. I mean, that was, presumably, that was a real boathouse as well, was it? Yes, we, we were. were in, we were yeah. in the boathouse at that house, at a boathouse. 
What was weird was, was, was there was a room at the back of the boat. As I, I assume at some point we must have done a shot where you could see through the door back and see some glinting water, but they never use it in the film, so it could be shot anywhere. But I remember yeah. when, you know, when, you're, when you're waiting for them to light, because that was done at night. That was a night shoot. And, uh, you know, you hang around waiting for while well, they're lighting. To, and we were always, there were always there was lapping water and boats. I think we sat in one for a while. <laughs> but that was the scene I was telling you that earlier on in the interview where, that we did on day four, that scene. Went yeah, so out for a curry the night before to, to ostensibly discuss what sort of kiss it should be and what we were going to do. And, and we talked about everything under the sun apart from that. And then on the way back to the hotel, and Rupert oh, shamefully says it was him. And I know it was me. I remember saying to him, although Rupert says it was him, I just think it should be a proper kiss, don't you? Like, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. And that's all we said. And the next day, his tongue is halfway down my throat. <laughs> <laughs> that, to me, is the most beautiful scene of the, of the lot, because that just epitomises their affection and their love for yeah. each other at that point. I think it's really, really I'll tell you another story about that. There was a, because we were, again, he's quite rare, James Ivey. He allows his actors to go into the, uh, and see um, rushes and see rough cuts. And um, he invited... Uh, Rupert, Hugh and I to see a rough cut no music and um, when in that particular scene we are talking about when, when Morris and Scudder having kissed move apart there was a tiny piece of saliva linking us and uh, I remember thinking oh I quite like that a bit odd but at least, at, least, at least it's clear we've been kissing and then a month or so passed, and we were invited to see another one if we wanted to. And out of nowhere, that tiny piece of saliva had, had disappeared. I, I said to Jim, and Rupert was there, I said to Jim, I said, why, why have you changed the shot of when we part? For one, well, I don't know, it didn't seem quite in keeping. I said, but surely it's exactly in keeping. It should be, it should, that's, ex, that's exactly the point, isn't it? That they, that they are physically bound to each other. And so he put it back. But I notice in this <laughs> in this remastering um, that's been done recently, uh, and it was when it was re-released, because Hugh Grant and I went to go and watch it at the, uh, at the BFI last a couple of years ago now, and stayed to watch the film, both of us quite swimming. Uh, we were asked to, in to introduce it, and then we both decided to watch it. They didn't have gone again, so they re-changed the shot, which I think is a shame, but hey, there you go. No, definitely, definitely a shame. If nobody was told what you were meant to do, if there weren't any rules, then we'd be living in a totally different format. A brand new podcast featuring rarely heard voices from across the UK and around the world. Bisexuality is not really understood because people have biphobic tendencies. And the second you mention bisexual, just their ears pick up. Contemporary conversations around bisexuality. Oh, well, you, you're still confused, right? No, I'm not confused. We are questioned so much more than people when they come out as straight or gay. It's intense pressure of like, am I sure? You're literally like monitoring yourself. Every episode will include a very personal story as we try to paint a real picture of bisexual Britain. This is Bisexual Brunch. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Distinct drama. Fresh and original. Mr. Fenn, I assure you that I have not come here to murder you. 
however tempted I may be. A terse 40-minute drama set in a US correctional facility. Oh, I see. You wish to be sent to the electric chair. Yeah. Oh, oh no, 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 Mr. Fenn. That would not do at all. Starring the award-winning Joe Sims. In short, Mr. Fenton, you are what may be regarded as disposable humanity. Don't you dare think that I started all of this out of political ambition. Yes, sir. Yes, Mr. Daniels, I do think that. And to show you that there is such a thing as redemption. To show you that you are educable and have potential. Show me? Show me, Mr. Daniels? I think you're done showing me my potential. As we forgive them. Available now. To place yourself in the center of a dream doesn't make it a bad one. And this dream, my dream, in whatever depths of despair it may have been born, has become the start of something real. Listen at distinctnostalgia.com or search for Distinct Drama wherever you get your podcasts. Dear Miss Jones, may I call you Clementina? Firstly, may I say how nice it was to meet you in the park yesterday. Distinct Comedy presents Letters from One Border Terrier Pup to Another. Apparently, socks that cannot accommodate toes because they have large holes where said toes should be fail to fulfil any real purpose. Based on true events seen through canine eyes. I now know that I'm definitely afraid of both heights and, not surprisingly, of big ladies. Dear Clementina, new episodes every Thursday. Search for Distinct Comedy wherever you get your podcasts. Sincerely yours, Stanley Burke. What? So, there you were, you'd done this film, the three of you, good-looking guys, still good-looking now, of course. Not quite, (laughs) (laughs) so it's all gone. You, um... You were um, thrust into the limelight, as it were, as you know. Um, how did how did the film go down? I gather it was it was met very well, all in different parts of the world, but it wasn't didn't wasn't as big a success here as it was elsewhere, was it? Is that right? Well, that's that's my my feeling. Um, in Paris, it played for a year in one cinema, and it was huge, huge hit in in Italy. We won we won uh, Best Actor Hugh Grant tonight at the Venice Film Festival jointly. Um, it ran for oh months. It, it was a massive hit in America, in New York, particularly in San Francisco and LA and places. And yet here it was kind of received. But you see, Thatcher just brought out Clause Twenty Eight, and I, there was various. Yeah. There's one particular film critic whose name I won't mention because he's a nice man, I guess. But he didn't seem. And he's gay, and he didn't seem to have the courage to come out and say this is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful film. He was a bit mealy mouthed about it. It got ignored at the Baftas. I always feel what a shame that it, the one country where you know that it's based in couldn't celebrate it. But nonetheless, it launched in many ways your film, film career, didn't it? Absolutely. It, it was something for you, for you in all particular. Our careers, yeah, all yeah. of them. Yeah, all of you, all of you. Yeah. So you must look back on it very affectionately. I do hugely affectionately. And when it was re-released recently, and um, we went to this, as I said, the screening at the BFI, you realise it's sort of. It's, it's, I'm not saying it's a cult film, you know, it's, just, it's got a sort of classic status. Did you get much feedback at the time from gay people, from gay men oh, or anything like that? amazing amount of letters, yeah. yeah. A lot of letters from particularly sort of middle-aged people who'd, or people in their first or forties who suddenly said, you've given me the courage to come out effectively. Your film's changed my life. And that's, it's very rare as a, in any art form that you, you get to, to, to actually affect 
someone's life. But that was the only well, one of the few things I've done, which I think genuinely did. Did it affect the kind of parts you then got afterwards? No, no. I played a, the film I immediately played was a sort of love story called um, A Summer Story with Imogen Stubbs. And the film after that was um, was playing a rather beautiful man called Tony Last in A Handful of Dust, even more as A Handful of Dust. Um, but Ivory always remembered me, the way I played the scene where Clive splits up with Morris. And he's basically, and I think it's a very clever piece of writing by Forster, is that having, you know, when, when, when Clive leaves him, he needs somebody to lash out at. We all, we all sometimes do that. So he lashes out at his sister in the most revolting way. And I'm one of, always one of those actors that take things on, you know, I completely in, 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 intuitively understood why he was lashing out. He was lashing out because he'd been rejected. So he needed to be cruel and mean to someone else and blame someone else. I understand that human emotion. I do it myself sometimes. Uh, and I fully understand it. So I did, I, I did it no holds barred. But in consequence, he then cast me as Charles Wilcox in Howard's End, who's a revolting character. And that was a film that f***ed me. <laughs> All I then got offered for a long, long time was, was revolting Englishmen, and that's upset me, because that's, <laughs> I've got a much, much larger uh, repertoire than that. Yes, well, your character in, in Morris was, was a nice guy, wasn't he? Well, apart from that one a, moment. You know, Likeable. Yeah. It's a bit thick, well, a bit but stupid, you... but, he, but, in, but the film allows him to... To, uh, to grow. And you're right, people, every, we all have little asides to ourselves, things that we do when we get annoyed or in a corner or whatever it may be. Now, that's interesting that it didn't, it didn't typecast you because I've interviewed quite a few people who've done very big roles where they've had to play gay characters. And just about everyone that I've spoken to have said that they ended up being typecast for a period of time. Um, I have played a lot of gay characters since then, but not, yeah. not immediately, interestingly. Yeah, that's interesting. So, Hugh Grant, of course, in a way, I know he's not, he, he, he just, he's played lots of other characters, lots of straight characters, and whatever, but what, <laughs> what's interesting about Hugh, and he'd probably say this, I've heard him talk about it, you know, he, he, he carried on playing that sort of, I don't know, Toth character, didn't he? You know, he's, he's, he, that's where he's made a name for himself, really. I mean, he's done a lot of other things. But that's the thing people know him for, isn't it? That kind of character that he started off as in, in Morris. In, yeah, but in a way. he's got an amazing gift of light comedy. He's a brilliant light comedian. And he makes you laugh. He's a very funny man. And that's, that's his gift. For but, weddings and a funeral, but onwards. He's, he's, just, he's just got a lovely touch, very light touch. Didn't you do a stage version of Morris? Well, I, yeah, I was. Years. This is only a year ago. Um, no, two years ago now. Um, I was asked to direct Morris at a small gay theatre called Above the Stag in Vauxhall in London. And I said, yes, loved it. And I really, really loved it. I enjoyed directing and I enjoyed directing something I knew about. And I, you know, if you're working on the fringe, uh, which effectively it is, there's no money involved. So you. Luckily, I got three very good actors to play the, the three leading roles, but also I did pull a few favours out of mates of mine who were prepared to come in and work for next to nothing. Most, most older actors think, no, I'm not doing that. There's no money. I've got to pay my bills. It became a really lovely, tight company, and 
everyone loved the experience. So it, that made up for it. There's none of them who wish they hadn't done it. I know that. And were you able to approach it in a slightly different way because it was theatre? Did you do it in a different way to film, do you think? Um, yes. I said to them all, you know, on day one of rehearsal, this is not the film. We are not doing the film. We are doing an adaptation of a book. And it will be completely different. Don't you worry. It just will be, just by the nature of it. And it was. It was very, very different. And there's something about the, I mean, where movies can take you on a wonderful wonderful kind of visual extravaganza what the theater is is much more visceral and so the scenes and particularly the sort of intimate sex scenes were were very visceral and people were you could hear a pin drop in that theater unfortunately above the stag is it's literally below Vauxhall bridge and so every now and then a train clanks across but in a curious way it added to the atmosphere of victorian england <laughs> Fabulous. James, it's been absolutely lovely to talk to you. Thank you. Great pleasure. Distinct Nostalgia is produced by MIM. And you can hear lots more programmes via the Distinct Nostalgia player. There's Hartley Hare and a Pitkins reunion. So, Hartley, nice yes, to hello. meet you. Can, nice I, can, I, can I shake you can your shake paw? shake my hand, yes. Is it a paw or well, a it's hand? it's a paw, really. It's I paw. call it a hand. <laughs> I remember you going to the dentist. Oh, yes, I went to the dentist once. And you weren't very one. happy about it, no, were you? No, I wasn't you? very happy about it. I hated it. Corrie and Carry On star Amanda Barry remembers being a children's TV presenter in the 70s. Because it was live, they were always either overrunning or underrunning, so they were mad people waving at you. Mm. I remember one day we were really underrunning. So I hopped on the wall and walked along it. Oh, I got in such trouble. They said, you are teaching children to walk on walls. We're back in Hartley to meet the original female inspectors from Juliet Bravo. So when you come to do any filming, you've got this skirt on and this jacket and the coat was cold. The hat, the first hat we wore wasn't reinforced. It wasn't a helmet. And I had a handbag. No pockets. There wasn't a single pocket in my jacket. I mean, talk about ill-equipped. <laughs> and there's even an appearance from Gonzo in our great Muppets reunion. Dr. Gutnick works on me. I've had my nose lifted. I've had, you know, everything fixed. Everything's been lifted. <laughs> These programmes and many more are all available now at distinctnostalgia.com. Get in touch via the Contact Us page on the website. Bye for now. Distinct Nostalgia is brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. We've lots of activities for you to do at home at liferooms.org. Staying well, staying home.